Hi guys. Good afternoon. Uh, I hope everyone had a great weekend. Seriously. Um, it's Monday, so I brought a special guest. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, have the Attorney General uh, come up to the podium to make an announcement regarding immigration enforcement with respect to sanctuary cities. Uh, when the Attorney General is done speaking, we'll have time for a couple questions, and then, uh, and then I'll continue with the briefing. So if your question is not germane to sanctuary cities, keep your hand down, and, uh, and we'll get to it after uh, we go through the events of the day. Uh, so with that, Attorney General Sessions, come on up. Right, thank you. Thank you, Sean. The Department of Justice has a duty to enforce our nation's laws, including our immigration laws. Those laws require us to promptly remove aliens when they are convicted or detained of certain crimes. The vast majority of American people support this common sense requirement. According to one recent poll, 80% of Americans believe that cities that make arrest, that arrest illegal immigrants for crime should be required to turn them over to immigration authorities. Unfortunately, some states and cities have adopted policies designed to frustrate this enforcement of immigration laws. This includes refusing to detain known felons under federal detainer request or otherwise failing to comply with these laws. For example, the Department of Homeland Security recently issued a report showing that in a single week uh, there were more than 200 instances of jurisdictions refusing to honor ICE detainer requests with respect to individuals charged or convicted of a serious crime. These, the charges and convictions against these aliens include drug trafficking, hit and run, rape, sex offenses against a child, and even murder. Such policies cannot continue. They make our nation less safe by putting dangerous criminals back on the streets. We all remember the tragic case of Kate Steinle, the 32-year-old woman who was shot and killed two years ago in San Francisco as she walked along a pier with her father. The shooter, Francisco Sanchez, was an illegal immigrant who had already been deported five times and had seven felony convictions. Just 11 weeks before the shooting, San Francisco had released Sanchez from its custody even though immigrations and customs enforcement officers had filed a, re a detainer requesting that he be held in custody until immigration authorities could pick him up for removal. Even worse, Sanchez admitted the only reason he came to San Francisco was because it was a sanctuary city. A similar story unfolded just last week whenever Valles, an illegal immigrant and a Mexican national, was charged with murder and robbery of a man at a light rail station. Valles was released from a Denver jail in late December, despite the fact that ICE had lodged a detainer for his removal. The American people are not happy with these results. They know that when cities and states refuse to help enforce immigration laws, our nation is less safe. Failure to deport aliens who are convicted of criminal offenses puts whole communities at risk. 
especially immigrant communities in the very sanctuary jurisdictions that seek to protect the perpetrators. DUIs, assaults, burglaries, drug crimes, gang rapes, crimes against children and murderers. Countless Americans would be alive today and countless loved ones would not be grieving today if these policies of sanctuary cities were ended. Not only do these policies endanger lives of every American, just last May the Department of Justice Inspector General found that these policies also violate federal law. The President has rightly said disregard, disregard for law must end. In his executive order, he stated that it is the policy of the executive branch to ensure that states and cities comply with all federal laws, including all immigration laws. Today, I'm urging states and local jurisdictions to comply with these federal laws, including 8 U.S.C. Section 1373. Moreover, the Department of Justice will require that jurisdictions seeking or applying for Department of Justice grants to certify compliance with 1373 as a condition of receiving those awards. This policy is entirely consistent with the Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs guidance that was issued just last summer under the previous administration. This guidance requires state and local jurisdictions to comply and certify compliance with Section 1373 in order to be eligible for OJP grants. It also made clear that failure to remedy violations could result in withholding grants, termination of grants, and disbarment or ineligibility for future grants. The Department of Justice will also take all lawful steps to claw back any funds awarded to a ju jurisdiction that willfully violates 1373. In the current fiscal year, Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs and Community-Oriented Policing Services anticipates awarding more than $4.1 billion in grants. I strongly urge our nation's states and cities and counties to consider carefully the harm they are doing to their citizens by refusing to enforce our immigration laws and to rethink these policies. Such policies make their cities and states less safe. Public safety, as well as national security, are at stake and put them at risk of losing federal dollars. The American people want and deserve a lawful system of immigration that keeps us safe and one that serves the national interest. This ex expectation is reasonable, just, and our government has the duty to meet it, and we will meet it. Thank you. In Montgomery County, Texas, I'm sorry, Montgomery County, right up the road, there was a rape in Maryland, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, at Rockville High School. Has anyone from the Department of Justice had any conversation with anyone in Montgomery County or Rockville as they describe themselves as sanctuary county and city? And there's also a boatload of federal government in Montgomery County. Well, you know, Maryland is talking about a state law to make the state a sanctuary state. Uh, the governor is opposed to that, I'm glad to hear. That would be such a mistake. I would plead with the people of Maryland to understand that this makes the state of Maryland more ri at risk for violence and crime, 
that it's not good policy. And as a, a former prosecutor for many years in state and federal uh, law on the and jurisdictions, I just know the historic relationship different federal agencies have with regard to honoring detainers. It's just a fundamental principle of law enforcement that if you uh, have a person arrested and another jurisdiction has a charge, then uh, they file a detainer. And when you finish with the prisoner, you turn them over to the next jurisdiction for their uh, uh, adjudication. That is what should be done with right. So, Mr. Attorney General. Major. Mr. Attorney, so listening to you carefully, uh, it sounds like you're applying the standards and the policy that the Obama administration put forward on compliance with underlying Justice Department rules. Are you taking any additional steps? And have you asked the President to maybe talk about other federal funds that are not necessarily under your control as a way to punish sanctuary cities or states? Well, that's a good question. What I'm saying today is that essentially the policies of the Obama administration that we issued last July uh, make clear that you should not be receiving certain fu federal funds if you're not in compliance with 1373. Uh, we believe that grants in the future could be issued that have additional requirements, as every grant that's being issued in America today usually has uh, a requirement that if you qualify for this grant, you have to meet certain requirements. So we'll be looking at that in the future and we'll continue to pursue it. But fundamentally, we intend to use all the uh, uh, lawful authority we have uh, to make sure that our state and local officials who are so important to law enforcement are in sync with the federal government. Mr. Attorney General, some of those officials in general cities, for example, bigger cities, have said despite the lack of federal funding, they will continue to be sanctuary cities, that they don't care that they're losing money essentially. What recourse does the Department of Justice have in those cities that look at what you're doing and say, we don't care, we're going to continue to implement this policy. Well, that's very fundamentally, you know, disheartening. Uh, but the, I hope uh, that the American people and, and the, their constituents in their own cities will communicate with them. And as we continue a dialogue and a discussion, and as we continue to assure, ensure that monies that go for law enforcement only go to cities who are participating in an effective collegial cooperative way with the federal government, uh, that that would also send a message. We have simply got to end this policy. Thank you all. What about the Eric Garner case and the, the, the white supremacist that killed the black man in New York? Is that a hate crime, sir? Okay, you guys ready to continue? Good. Uh, before I get into the day schedule, I wanted to read, um, I know there's been some interest in the State Department's uh, statement uh, regarding the arrests of hundreds of protesters, uh, peaceful protesters that occurred in Russia. Uh, the statement that the State Department put out says, quote, the United States strongly condemns the detention of hundreds of peaceful protesters throughout Russia on Sunday. The detention of peaceful protesters, human rights observers, and journalists is an affront to essential democratic values. We are troubled to hear of the arrest of, opposition, of the opposition leader upon arrival at the demonstration, as well as the police raids on the anti-corruption organization he heads. The United States will monitor the situation, and we call on the government of Russia to immediately release all peaceful protesters. The Russian people, like people everywhere, deserve a government that supports an open marketplace, open marketplace of ideas, transparent and accountable governments, governance, equal treatment of the law, and the ability to exercise their rights without fear of retribution. Now, with respect to events for the day, 
the, this morning after receiving his daily intelligence briefing, the president participated in a roundtable with women small business owners. The president is hosting a group of women's business owners as part of the White House's full calendar of Women's History Month events. At the roundtable this morning, Vice President Pence, SBA Administrator McMahon joined with other senior administration officials to hear from these amazing female entrepreneurs and small business leaders about their firsthand experiences, successes, and challenges. As the president said, quote, empowering and promoting women in business is an absolute priority in the Trump administration because I know how crucial women are as job creators, role models, and leaders all throughout our communities. The women in attendance this morning have incredible stories, including many who have started businesses from scratch with very limited resources and through hard work and determination turn their dreams into reality. Between them, they provide hundreds of jobs to Americans across the country. The President is dedicated to continuing to remove the unique barriers that women face in our economy, including access to capital, markets, and networks. This administration will continue to advocate for policies that support working family, including a national initiative to promote women business leaders and entrepreneurs that his daughter Ivanka is helping to lead. In honor of Women's History Month, the White House has been hosting events all throughout March. Just to name a few, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Systems Administrator Verma held a roundtable with women in healthcare, which the President attended. The First Lady held a women's empowerment lunch on International Women's Day. Earlier this month, Second Lady uh, uh, Karen Pence joined women from all five military branches for lunch at Fort Meade, and last week hosted military women at the Vice President's residence to thank them for their service. Under President Trump, the American economy is a place for everyone, regardless of their gender, to thrive. Following the roundtable, the President uh, had lunch with the Vice President and Secretary of State Tillerson, and at 3 o'clock, the President will sign House Joint Resolutions 37, 44, 57, and 58, uh, all of which use the powers of the Congressional Review Act to roll back job-killing rules. Before this administration, only one time in the nation's history had a President ever signed a bill that used the Congressional Review Act to cancel a federal reg re uh, regulation. In just his first 66 days as President, he will have signed six resolutions to eliminate unnecessary and burdensome rules. House Joint Resolution 37 rolls back the so-called blacklisting rule, which manufacturers identified during their meeting with the President as one of the most significant threats to, the growing, American, to growing American businesses and to hiring more American workers. The rule simply made it too easy for trial lawyers to go after American companies and American workers who contract with the federal government. The President saw that workers, taxpayers, and businesses were the ones who truly suffered under this rule, and he's glad to be signing legislation to eliminate it. House Joint Resolution 45, 40, 57, and 58 cancel federal power grabs that took decision-making away from the states and local governments who know the unique challenges of their own populations. The President firmly believes that Washington is not always the solution to these problems and that these bills return the power to the people by putting more decision-making in the hands of states. House Joint Resolution 44 removes a Bureau of Land Management rule known as Planning 2.0 that would have centralized federal and land management in Washington, diluting the concerns of local citizens who have a right that is protected by law to be involved in this decision-making process. H.J. Res 57 and 58 eliminate the Department of Education regulations, which limits states' flexibility in how they assess the performance of schools and teacher preparation and programs. 
Removing these additional layers of bureaucracy will make it easier for parents, teachers, and communities, and state leaders to address the needs of their students. The President will continue to work with Congress and the rest of the federal government until every unnecessary regulation that stands in the way of success for American business and American people is taken off the books. Uh, additionally, the President spoke with German Chancellor Merkel and Indian Prime Minister Modi earlier today to congratulate them on their party's success in recent elections. We'll have readouts on those calls a little later for you both. The President also uh, will announce the establishment of the, American of the Office of American Innovation. The Office of American Innovation will apply the President's ahead of schedule and under budget mentality to a wide number of government operations and service, enhancing the quality of life for all Americans. The Office will have a particular focus on technology and data, hearing back from leaders in the industry. As some of its first priorities, the Office will focus on modernizing the technology of ever, every federal department, identifying transformational infrastructure projects and reimagining the VA system so they can better serve our nation's heroes. The effort will be led by Assistant to the President and Senior Advisor Jared Kushner. Tomorrow, the President will sign an executive order to strengthen the nation's energy security by reducing unnecessary regulatory obstacles that restrict the responsible use of domestic energy resources. This order will help keep energy and electricity affordable, reliable, and clean in order to boost economic growth and job creation. And finally, before I came out today, Senate Democrats continued their obstruction to the President's nomination of Judge Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, with the Judiciary Committee seeking a one-week postponement on its decision. Over the weekend, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer defended his decision to mount a filibuster against the President's unquestionably qualified nominee. If Senator Schumer gets his way, this would be the first successful filibuster against the Supreme Court nominee in American history. He argued, quote, mis quite misleadingly, that the Senate has, quote, required a 60-vote threshold of, quote, every Supreme Court nominee. That's simply not true. And as I've said before, only three support justices have faced a, a filibuster in the last half of the century. Senator Schumer cited four justices confirmed under Senator President Bush and Obama. But in fact, among those four, only one faced an attempted filibuster. That was Justice Samuel Alito. And it was President Obama who then, as a senator, voted to filibuster Gen Justice Alito and later publicly expressed his regret for that. The fact is, an attempted filibuster of a Supreme Court nominee is rare, and to do so in this context with such an, an eminently qualified and brilliant judge is nothing short of obstructionism. That's why Senator Pat Leahy, the former Democratic chairman of the Senate Judiciary, said he is, quote, not inclined to filibuster, end quote, even if he ultimately may not vote to confirm the judge. The fact that former chair, the former chairman of the Judiciary Committee won't stand by the minority leader exposes the leader's efforts as nothing but obstructionism that undermines decades of Senate tradition. Through four days of extensive hearings, Judge Gorsuch demonstrated his, judi his judicial philosophy, his sterling academic credentials, and a brilliant legal mind. He deserves a fair up or down vote. And with that, I'd be glad to take a few of your questions. Jonathan. Is the President serious about working with Democrats going Absolutely. forward after what happened with health care? Absolutely. In fact, um, starting Friday afternoon through late yesterday, he's received a number of calls as well as other members of the senior staff uh, that had been working on health care uh, from members of both sides saying that they would like to work together, offer up ideas, um, and had suggestions about how to 
uh, come to resolution on this and get to a House vote on this. Um, but, 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 so but, but this, wouldn't this require a... I'm sorry, I'm not, this isn't a free-for-all. Jonathan's asking a question. But, but wouldn't this require a serious course collection, correction for the White House? I mean, the President's branded Chuck Schumer a clown, uh, you know, worked entirely with with Republicans on this bill, would this, would this require a serious change of course for the president? To some degree, sure. And I think the president talked about that. I think he's, um, he, we learned a lot through this process. I think we're obviously looking at uh, ways that we can improve not only how we handled health care, but other things, uh, how we do everything. Um, and I, I've mentioned it to some of you in the course of things. I think, you know, one of the traits of a successful organization is to always examine how you do things. Um, but I think that there's been a lot of outreach from members of both sides with ideas, and the president's willing to listen to these individuals. And if they can come to resolution on a way forward, um, obviously we're willing to listen and to move forward. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks that, that came forward with these ideas. And, and with all due respect to the beginning of your question, I don't think it's a one-way street, some of the comments that have been made. I think some of the Democrats who now say they weren't involved Early on in the process, said that there was there would be no they would had they wanted nothing to do with this process. There was no way that they would engage in any discussion or repeal. Um, so I, I think it's a two-way street, and I think that we have been willing to listen to folks and their ideas. Um, and the president's advice is that if we can come up with resolution on a way to move forward, we'll certainly entertain that. And where's the buck stop for this failure? So well, it's not. But, but just to be clear, look, we're we're at the beginning of a process. I don't think we've seen the end of health care. Um, as most people have noted, I think the Obama administration from beginning to end, um, it ultimately took about 17 months, went through a series of fits and starts, um, and it wasn't until Scott Brown was elected, denying them the 60th vote in the Senate, that they finally jammed something through. And, and frankly, a lot of the reason that the Secretary of Health and Human Services has some of the powers that they do is because they, they, got it, they, they had to jam it through. But there were several failures uh, when Obamacare went through um, during the process, and you know, ultimately they tried to go through a single-payer process, and they had to, they got rebuffed on that by some of their own members. Um, so, you know, look, we're we're not saying it's the end of healthcare, but I think that we are looking to to look for a way forward. And I think that a lot of the members, um, and again, on both sides of the aisle, have reached out not just to the president but to members of the team, uh, willing to share some ideas and uh, both that will make the they think that would make the bill stronger. Uh, but ultimately, the goal is to get to 216 and potentially 218, depending on where we are with special elections. Um, and, and so we're, we're going to look to see where we can get those 218 votes. And there may be other opportunities to work with people across the aisle to get us to 218. Uh, but that's the name of the game, and uh, uh, we're going to continue to pursue that. Jim. Uh, Sean, the last Congress to pass significant tax reform took about five years. And that was 30 years ago in 1986, after the failure or the defeat of the American Health Care Act on an issue where there was broad GOP consensus. Uh, what makes the President think he can pass significant tax reform this year? Well, I think it's been 30 years. I think people, we have a series of, we have an economy that's evolved, especially in the technology area that has made a lot of things change. And I think our tax code is outdated. Um, and frankly, on the business side, we're uncompetitive. There's a reason that companies are leaving America to go to other places because same reason sometimes companies move from state to state. Uh, our corporate and regulatory system has become unattractive for a lot of companies that want to either manufacture here, grow here, or begin here, and um, or want to return jobs here. I think the president recognized that. Business leaders from around the country, um, it's not a partisan issue. I mean, you go out um, to the tech sector out in Silicon Valley in particular, there's a lot of these companies out there that admittedly weren't with the president uh, during the election or continue not to be. 
and and I think recognize that we are not as competitive as we can be uh, when you consider the tax and regulatory climate of other countries around the, the world, and we need to be more competitive. Then I think you look at the individual side of the house, and I think especially when you talk to um, to middle-income Americans, uh, especially when in the context of health premiums going skyrocketing up, they recognize that they need some relief. Um, and so we've got to do what we can to address that. John Christopher. Thank you. Uh, since, historically, since health care has beguiled many presidents, all the way back to Harry Truman, um, and certainly when Hillary Clinton came to Washington, the, she went to the Hill and thought that she could get it done. Uh, I'm sure there are many lessons you can learn from previous presidents and perhaps previous first ladies. Have, has the president uh, thought of ever reaching out to Hillary and finding out, you know, how she maneuvered and, and some of the best practices or some of the uh, pitfalls that she's coming to? Well, and, and I think that you know, and I mean, he's met with Dr. Zeke Emanuel and others. It's not been a... Uh, it, he has reached out to several people throughout this process uh, to gauge both their policy ideas and, and strategy ideas. And I think, you know, the president noted on Friday afternoon that we learned a lot uh, on several fronts about strategically how to handle this, as well as some of the uh, the members uh, that we thought we could we would have with us. And we're reexamining that on a variety of bases. Margaret. Thank you. Um, I, we got some guidance from the White House earlier about. Uh, Chairman Nunez is leaving on the White House grounds involving the and the idea that questions about the meeting should be referred to the committee chairman. Um, but I wanted to ask you a slightly different question, which is, um, does the White House know now what actually <coughs> happened? Um, do you have issues with the idea that someone, perhaps in the executive branch, um, shared information on the White House grounds without you knowing about it? Are you investigating this? Do you believe it was a leak? Do you, or, or was it in fact someone on the White House staff or NRC <coughs> staff or on loan to either who provided the information and therefore it's not a leak? Um, so I obviously, all of what I know uh, has been available through public comments. Uh, I know that Chairman Nunez has confirmed that he was on White House grounds. Uh, Tuesday, and frankly, any questions regarding who he met with or why he was here should be referred to him. I've seen some of the comments that he's made uh, to your outlet, in particular, about who he met with, um, and and I would I would refer you to uh, his comments that he's made. I'm not going to get into who he met with or why he met with them. I think that's something that he has been made very clear, and I'll let him answer it. This is a uh, he is the one who has uh, discussed what he is reviewing, and. Um, and so I will leave it up to him and not try to, to get in the middle of that. I'm asking a slightly different question. Okay. At least I'm trying to ask a slightly different question, which is, uh, does the White House know what happened now beyond public accounts? And are you satisfied that you don't have an inappropriate leak in the executive branch? No, I'm, I'm not. We're not concerned about that. I know that he is, again, everything that I know about what he has done is through uh, public uh, reports that he has made on the record to different folks when he said he has multiple sources. He had met with different folks to gather things um, as part of his review of the situation. And so all I know and what I'm willing to communicate is what, what has been made available through on-the-record comments that he has made. You have to be cleared on to no, not necessarily. I don't know that members of Congress need to be cleared. But don't, when you, wouldn't the White House want to know? I mean, uh, again, I think there's a difference. He's doing a review and it's not something that we're going to necessarily get in the middle of it or get in the way of. It's Part of it is to let him review um, and have conversations and look at things that he thinks are, are relevant. Thank you. 
Hallie. So on a clarification on, on your answer to Margaret, you just said, I don't know the members of Congress have to get cleared in. There is some question about that. Who in the White House signed him in, essentially, to be able to get I don't know that you have to. I, I'll, I'll be glad to check on that. I'm not sure that that's, that that's how that works, but I will follow up on that point. Okay, this, and the second question is, and it's related to this, I understand that you're not going to speak about some of the swirl, you know, what's surrounding this issue with, with Chairman Nunes. Does the White House believe that he can still lead an impartial investigation, or would the administration support some of these calls now for an independent committee to investigate this? I, first of all, I would question what this is, because as I've mentioned countless times from this podium, there's two issues at hand. There, there's multiple. There's Number one, there's any action with respect to Russia itself, and every single person that's been briefed by uh, Director Comey in particular and the FBI has said there's nothing there. What he is looking into are two things that we are aware of because of, of the pleas that we have made. One is the, the leaks of classified and other information that have come out. And two is, um, is whether or not um, there has been people that have been unmasked and whether or not there's surveillance security. I don't know why we stand by the, the original request that was made. And I think Director Comey in open testimony the other day talked about what the FBI is looking into. So I think we, you know, have a lot of people looking into this whole situation. Sean, Sean. will the administration pursue, will the White House pursue a leak investigation into whoever is giving Chairman Nunes this information if it's in the executive branch? I, I, at this point, we're letting his investigation, is the review of this situation proceed and we can address that after he decides to, to be clear about that. Why is this yeah. leak okay but other leaks are not? It's not a, I think there's a difference between a leak and, and someone pursuing a, a, a review of a situation that they have determined. That's not there's a difference between a leak, someone leaking out to reporters for nefarious to, to take classified information and share it with people who aren't cleared. Chairman Nunez is cleared. The, he is the chairman of the Intelligence Committee. Someone who is cleared to share classified information with somebody else cleared is not a leak. Zeke. Can I have two for you? Uh, just a quick ask if you know, at the beginning of the briefing, you read out uh, the State Department's statement on the protests and arrests in Russia. Does that reflect the White House's views sometimes? That reflects the view of the United States government. Okay. Just want to clarify that. And secondly, back on. Uh, uh, you mentioned that there were there were lessons learned off of uh, what went down last week, the last several weeks around healthcare. Could you go into some specifics of what some of those lessons are in terms of the president talked a lot about? He learned a lot about loyalty. I think is one of the lines yeah. he used on Friday. Is, this, is he does he believe that some members of this party are no longer loyal to him? What you go through? What are some of the lessons? No, I'm not. I'm not going to detail. Go through. I mean, obviously, this is an internal thing that we discussed. But I will say that you know we look at things like everything from you know who we met with and when we met with them to, you know, whether or not we should have, how, how the thing, how everything was rolled out and what organizations were met with, uh, what commitments were met and when. And there's a lot that goes into this. And you look at whether or not that's applicable to another situation, whether that's unique. Um, but obviously, yeah, you do look at some of the individuals that you met with, uh, both in terms of timing, in terms of commitment, in terms of substance, um, and evaluate, you know, just the process itself, but then also to some degree the the, the individuals and whether or not that is someone that uh, that you you know uh, there's there's several folks and again it depends on the aspect of it there's there's a legislative affairs team there's a public policy team there's a, a comms uh, aspect to this but we all internally talk about what went well what didn't and we do that not just with the bad but the good I mean I think I think Jonathan asked it somewhat at the beginning but I think if you know, in orga most organizations, whether or not you do something really well or not as well, um, it's usually incumbent upon you to think, what did we do well so that for things that we did really well, we sustain those kind of aspects of something, because uh, there's always something to improve. And even when you don't do as well, but there's parts of 
things that you did that could have done that you did well, and you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So there's an ongoing piece to this major. Follow up a little bit on Chairman Nunes, and I have a question about Jared in a second. So, yes, <coughs> members of Congress may not need to be cleared in, but to get access to a skiff, I do believe that requires some cooperation from the executive branch because there are intelligence places on Capitol Hill that are secure that this meeting could have taken place. So it creates the impression that Chairman Nunes came over here and, with some degree of cooperation with this White House, was able to carry out this meeting and then make the announcement that he did, which is perceived by some, most of them Democrats, I'll grant you that, that it was trying to be helpful to this president and this administration. So it appears there was some degree of cooperation in this process that the White House granted Chairman Nunes, making it not just an investigative action, but a cooperative one. Right. So I, I would refer you to two things. Number one, we've asked both of these entities, both the House and the Senate Intelligence Committees, to undertake this review. So it is partially at our request that they're looking into this. Number two, number two, based on the public comments that he made to Margaret's organization, he, did, he, he has said, from my understanding on the record, that he, is not, that he did not meet with White House staff. So again, I think you're, you're trying to make something that he has himself, from what I've read, not actually been the case. That's not what I asked you. I asked you about cooperation I, to have access to a skip, I understand which is something not, that has to be carried out with your agreement. I will be glad to take a look at that and figure out whether or not that is an accurate statement or not. Okay. Let me ask you about Jared. I, there is an understanding that's trying to be worked out, as we understand it, between Jared and the Senate Intelligence Committee. Is that testimony? Is that something that the committee has requested? Is he volunteered? Yeah. Does he believe he has something to explain to that committee and more broadly the American public about what he did on behalf of the transition with whom he met with and some of the meetings that he took that are raising questions about Russia and folks that he met with that are outside of diplomatic channels but have other aspects to their Russian business deals that may cause concern? Right. So throughout the, the campaign and the tra transition, Jared served as the official primary point of contact with foreign governments and officials until we had State Department officials up once we assumed request. That's correct. Uh, and so given this role, uh, he volunteered to speak with Chairman Burr's committee, but has not re received any confirmation regarding uh, a time for a meeting or anything. Is this going to be a private meeting or is this going to be I, a I don't know. He, again, and he was that he, he, I think based on the, the questions that surround this, he volunteered to go in and sit down with them and say, hey, I'm glad to talk about the role that I played and the individuals I met with. But again, remember, given the role that he played both during the campaign and during the transition, he met with countless individuals. Um, that was part of his job. That was part of his role. Um, and he executed it completely as he was supposed to. So he doesn't believe he owes the American public an explanation for about what this. doing his job, meeting. With, but you're you're acting as though there's something nefarious about doing what he was actually tasked well, it's to not do. Every day that someone in a senior position like Jared's volunteers to go talk to the Senate Intelligence no, no. Committee about Be an investigation because of the dealing with meddling by a foreign power. Right, in the and, and I think based election. on the, the the media frenzy around this, he and I'm answering it, and I'm just saying to you that based on the media frenzy that existed around this, he volunteered to make sure that they, he said, hey, we've made some contacts. I'd be glad to explain them. Let me know if you'd like to talk, plain and simple. Yeah. So just to be clear, just to kind of follow up on what everyone's been asking about Chairman Nunes. So the White House does not, does the White House have knowledge of the information that Chairman Nunes received when he came to the White House the first time? And, is, and if that's the case, or if that's not the case, is your position that the White House 
is not going to look into where he got the information from or, or who gave him the information until his investigation is complete? I think that, that I'm not aware of where he got it from. I know in his public statements he's talked about having multiple sources. Um, and so I don't know how he derived a conclusion that he did. Um, and, you know, I think that at this point the, the goal would be to wait until uh, the review that he is undertaking is, is completed. Caitlin. Why would Nunez need to brief the president on documents he viewed on White House grounds? Because that's a big assumption that you're making that, that that's the only thing. He, as I said just a second ago, he, re he had multiple sources on multiple topics. We don't know what he briefed him on in its totality. And so to jump to that conclusion um, is frankly irresponsible. One more question. Yeah. When will the White House resume releasing visitor logs? Uh, we're reviewing that now. Alexis. Um, just to follow up, I have two questions. One is on taxes. But uh, last week you were uh, you were advising the press corps that it didn't make sense for Nunez to come to the White House and brief the president on something that he had obtained from the White House, from the administration. So my question to you is, I know what you just said, but is is it, can you say factually, you know, absolutely flatly, that it is not possible that um, Chairman Nunes came to brief the president on something that he obtained from the White House or the administration? Now, I can't say 100% that I know anything what he briefed him on. What I can tell you through his public comments is that he has said that he, he had multiple sources that he came to a conclusion on. So the degree to which any of those sources weighed on the ultimate outcome of what he came to, to a decision on, I don't know, and and that's something that, frankly, I don't even know that he discussed with the president. So it's possible, as far as you know, right well, now. It's anything, possible. I mean, that's possible. anything's possible. Okay. Here's my question on taxes. Yeah. The president has said that uh, in the past that he thought maybe tax reform would flow over into 2018 calendar year 2018, mm -hmm. and we know from the president's admiration of the 1986 tax reform that took more than two years. Can you answer two questions about tax reform? Does the president anticipate that it will take that long, going into 2018 or beyond? And who is going to write the tax legislation? Who is going to devise the plan that the president wants to put his name on? Well, so on the first one, I know that Secretary Mnuchin has talked about August as a target date. Um, and I think it depends. I mean, as you point out, these are big things. Uh, there's a lot of groups that are going to want a ton of input because of the very nature that it's been 30 years. Um, but I think part of this is going to be d dependent on um, whether, you know, how the degree to which we can come to consensus on a lot of big issues. Um, but I know that it's, we, we have a goal, and it'll depend on, on, um, on a lot of these issues, both on the corporate side and on the individual side, um, how, how that process evolves. So to predict it, I know the, the, the Secretary would like to have it done. He'll play a huge role in this. Uh, Gary Cohen will play a big role in it. I think our legislative affairs team would play a role in it. Uh, there's a lot of folks on the team, Secretary Ross on the Commerce side. Um, there's a lot of individuals that has assembled a, a world-class cabinet that has a lot of interest in helping to grow the economy, um, to attract jobs, create a more favorable tax climate here in the country, but then also provide tax relief for middle Americans, middle-class Americans. So, you know, we're not we're, we're not there yet. Trump. The Trump plan. What will it be? The president's plan. I mean, obviously, we're driving the train on this, so I don't want. I mean. We're going to work with Congress on this, but I think that the, the, the President, as you've heard through uh, multiple multiple times, the President would be very clear this is a huge priority for him, something that uh, he feels very passionately about. And, and um, so we'll have more on that later. John. Sean, the, the documents that Chairman Nunes uh, 
saw here at the White House complex be described by his office as being executive branch documents. In the early days after the President sent out that tweet, <coughs> the White House was digging around for anything to corroborate what the President had tweeted out. Why, why did it take the Intelligence Committee chairman coming here to the White House to view executive branch documents to uncover this information? Why couldn't the White House have Well, as I mentioned, I think to to Margaret, I'm not going to – I will stick to what the chairman has said publicly, and my understanding from his public comments are that there are certain systems that he doesn't have access to. Um, that was his explanation, and I'm going to – you know, I think you should follow up with him on that. Did the White House ever search the same documents that I, the chairman searched? I don't know what he found, so therefore it would be hard to say – to make an assessment of what he was briefed on and what we know. So that's, that's a really hard question to answer at this point. Is it possible that these documents were merely surveillance uh, reports that were guarded? I'm not going to get were, into there, there were John. I don't know what he found and to start to say what's possible, what's not, I don't know. Well, let me just finish if I could. Is it possible that these were surveillance reports from security clearances that were collected after people had filled out standard form 86? I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what he. I honestly don't know what he's got on his systems and what, uh, what what the intel community has on theirs that he wouldn't have access to. So I don't know what he would have had access to already. So, Eamon. Thanks, John. Uh, on tax cuts, it looks like you guys got a little bit of political cover from the House Freedom Caucus over the weekend uh, to do this without paying for all of it. That is adding to the deficit. What's the right number from the White House's perspective to add to the deficit in order to do tax cuts? What, how high are you willing to go in terms of deficit addition? I, it's, a, it's a really early question to be asking at this point. I think the question is, as we construct this both on the, on the corporate side um, and then on the individual side, I think part of it is it's going to be an equation that isn't just driven by that, but more what's going to attract jobs, what's going to help us build. Well, what's going to grow the economy? I think we're, we're growing around, you know, potentially growing around 2.6, and the president really would like to see that growth rate up in the, the high threes, fours, and fives. Um, and so there's, there's a question about what part of tax reform, um, especially on the corporate side, will help us spur the economy and grow jobs. And I, I think that's, that's an ongoing discussion. I think that's more of the driver of this, and then I think as it evolves, we'll have a score and we'll know more entirely adding to the deficit, or do you think some of this needs to be offset? To, 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 right. I, I don't, you're asking really early in the process to make that kind of analysis before we have a, a policy set forth or have any kind of uh, notion of what a score would look like that. Olivier. Thanks, John. Um, there's been a, a steady escalation of the American role in the war against the Islamic State. You see Marines come ashore in Syria. There were changes to rules of engagement. Has, I'm trying to understand the relationship between that change and the President's ISIS strategy review. Has he personally signed off on all the changes uh, in, in America's posture in the field since January 20th? Is that something that's left up to the commanders in the field? I don't understand the relationship well, between the Well, it depends on which, you know, mission you're talking about specifically or Marines just left in I think October they obviously went ashore much more recently than that in, uh, so did he have to sign off on that I think it depends on I mean he speaks with General Mattis his national security team very regularly um, I'm not going to get into some of the, the details of what comes up in those settings but I will say that as I've noted in the past I think philosophically the president has made it very clear that uh, that he wants to give the commanders on the ground much more flexibility to execute their mission, especially when it comes to defeating ISIS. That's a, a very big change in philosophy, but I think it also depends on uh, the, the magnitude of the mission, the number of ground troops in particular. or, or um, And so th this is an ongoing discussion that he has with Secretary Mattis, Chairman Dumford, and others. On the sorry, on the review, um, are you 
Are you waiting, is the president waiting until the review is complete before you announce sort of a new posturing strategy? Yeah, or I mean, is it as conclusions come in, you're adapting day to day? I think some of it is an ongoing discussion that he's having with both Chairman Dumford of the Joint Chiefs and Secretary Mattis of the DOD that at certain times when they meet, they'll update them on certain things and tell them, give them an update on where they're headed uh, right now. Um, you know, as the review is ongoing, there are certain events that are part of or will be part and parcel of, of the review in terms of where we're going. And so they'll update them on that and talk to them about the tweaks. Sean, Gabby. Um, Freedom Caucus for um, preventing Planned Parenthood from being defunded by opposing the AHCA. Is that something that he would want to see tacked on as a rider to next month's funding bill? Well, um, I think that he's made very clear what his position is on Planned Parenthood, um, and and obviously this was an opportunity to defund it, um, and he. But, but I don't want to get ahead of our legislative strategy. We'll look at other opportunities. But this is definitely one that was, an, uh, uh, you know, a way to make that happen. Steve. On that legislative strategy and the idea of working with Democrats, there's a school of thought in this town that last week proved that the president is lacking in political capital. So I have two questions. One is, what's in it for Democrats to work with the president now? And two, uh, if fully pursued and to get things through the House, you know, Democrats and Republicans work together. Wouldn't that tend to undermine the job security of Speaker Ryan if the House Freedom Caucus is frozen out? Well, so two things. Um, number one, I think the message that sends the American, uh, you know, the as I mentioned, I think it was Jonathan at the beginning. It's a two-way street. We heard. I mean, you see the whether it's Judge Gorsuch, which they're you know throwing down decades of of Senate tradition by saying we're just going to filibuster this guy. I don't think there's anyone in America that can honestly look at his qualifications and suggest that he's not qualified as a jurist on the Supreme Court. I mean, there's nothing that anyone has seen or laid a glove on him through these four days that suggests that he's not qualified to serve. Um, and I think that it's a, so, and, and again with Obamacare, uh, repealing and replacing it, several of this leading Democrats came out from the get-go and said, we have no interest in doing that. So I think there's a, a point at which both parties can look back and figure out whether or not it's worth engaging. I think the president, um, as I mentioned, is eager to get to 218 on a lot of his on a lot of his initiatives, um, whether it's tax reform, infrastructure. There's a lot of things, and I think uh, that he is going to be willing to listen to other voices on the other side to figure out if people want to work with him to get these big things done to make Washington work to enhance the lives of the American people. Then he's going to work with them. I think he had a great meeting with the CBC the other day, for example, where he talked about infrastructure. He talked about um, loans and small business lending, education. Um, there are things that he is willing to engage um, individuals with or groups or caucuses to get to 218 and further uh, advance his agenda. So it's not about undermining anybody. It's about moving the agenda forward and getting things done. It's, it's Speaker Ryan who puts bills on the floor, not the President. So what's in it for Speaker Ryan? Getting things done. I think there is still a sense of doing what's in the best interest of this country that exists. So, I mean, let's let's just make sure that we understand. I think that his goal, he came here to get things done. Um, and I think, you know, as it was pointed out, there was a level of disappointment that he expressed on Friday. He wants to get things done. If people want to work together, and I think what this event on Friday did was, frankly, draw more people into the process to saying, okay, Let's figure out if we can actually come together with some consensus ideas to get to 218, whether or not they come from one side of the aisle or the other, to, to, 
to pass this bill and to make a better system. He understands, and frankly, I think a lot of Democrats do, that there's an opportunity here. With health care being such a big issue, um, with Obamacare being such a you know, looming disaster, that we have an opportunity to do some stuff. And if Democrats want to join in, then that's great. And we'll do that. Mike. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. You've talked quite a bit up, up there about the wide latitude that Secretary Price has to dismantle Obamacare from, from, his, right. from his spot. Is that still the case? Will, will he continue to try to dismantle Obamacare while you're trying to work with moderate Democrats on health care reform? And also, uh, the, the health care bill, bill would have uh, repealed almost all those Obamacare taxes. Do you want to see those repealed as part of the tax reform bill? I think Secretary Price is up here today. Uh, there's a lot of meetings that are already taking place internally with the team. Um, there's a lot of options that are on the table in terms of, especially when it comes to what we called phase one and phase two, trying to get some of that stuff out the door. And, and as we look back on, you know, we're talking about lessons learned, I think one of them is to try to get some of the phase one, phase two meshed together and pushed out. How we do that, whether we wait for uh, the revival of, of legislation, um, before we put it up. Remember, I mean, I think, just so we're clear, and I mentioned earlier in this, I mean, Obamacare had a ton of fits and starts during its process. It was left for dead multiple times, uh, but they pressed forward. I don't think that that's necessarily a model to look forward in terms of how they jammed it down. But I do think that we have to recognize that we were, you know, 17, 18 days into this process. I think the President's made very clear we're not, it's not over. There are people coming to the table, uh, but he's going to listen to all good ideas across the spectrum to figure out what it takes to get to 218, and and we'll see where we go from there. John, well, the, uh, the tax question, just yeah. to follow up on the on the the health care bill would have repealed those Obamacare taxes, and I think that's part and parcel of that discussion is how we look at uh, both the taxes and some of the phase one stuff, uh, but we're not ready to announce anything now. John Decker, yeah, as far as Jared Kushner's offer to meet with uh, Chairman Burr and talk with the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, is there any particular reason why the White House would not be opposed to the idea of Jared Kushner testifying under oath before that committee? I, again, this is, we, Jared, volunteered to meet with the committee. They haven't, at, they haven't even confirmed having a meeting yet, so to get ahead of what they've even asked for would be a little silly. Um, in the White House's view, a dangerous precedent in having a senior aid to the president going up. Ordinarily, we see sometimes the White House invoking executive privilege. Why haven't you done this in this particular case? Because I think Jared did a job during the transition um, in the campaign where he, he, he was a conduit and to, uh, to leaders, um, and that's until we had a State Department of Functioning place for people to go. Uh, remember, we had a, a delay in some of these things, and that, that was his role. And he, has, he wants to make sure that he's very clear about the role that he played, who he talked to, um, and, and that's, that's it. Jim. Uh, is, uh, is Obamacare repealed dead? I don't think it's dead. Um, in the I mean, sense, have to be dead if you're going to have Democrats working with you. To, why? Why? No, no, I don't. I don't know that that's true because I think. It's, why would well, they? Why would they work? Because with it's you dying. You're still trying to repeal it. <laughs> because I think part of it is, is there's a recognition that it is failing. It's dying on its own. It will be dead soon. Democrats say it's not dying. Okay, well then a lot of Democrats need to get there more money. There are repairs that the, the, they need to be made, they say, but uh, I, I to kill the that, whole thing might I understand not be what they want, the route they want to go. I think there's a difference. I think that we recognize that premiums continue to go sky high, deductibles are going sky high, um, choices are going down. By Leader Pelosi's own metric, this is dying. She's the one who crafted the metric. She said that there was a three-pronged system determining its success. 
it is a abysmal failure. If they want to come back to the table and recognize how we can do it in a more responsible way to achieve the goals that Obamacare set out to do, but do so in a way that's going to do the opposite of what Obamacare actually did, which is to increase choice, drive down cost, we're willing to have that discussion. But right now, and, and, I, and I, again, they remember. They say repeal has to be right, put but, to the side. But, Jim, one of the things that I mentioned, I just want to be clear on this, is we have to figure out how we get to 216, 218, depending on where the number is that given day. That doesn't mean we need the entire Democratic caucus. That means we need some responsible Democrats who want to sit down and have a, a discussion about how to do that. And I think that there may be enough of them that are willing to do that. Um, but I understand where the, where the Democratic leadership is. And that, that's one thing. I mean, they continue to, to stake out a very, very far left position. That's not where all their members are. And I think that we can, based on the calls that have come in over the last 50, you know, 60 hours, I think that there might be some room to have a conversation with people who want to engage in a constructive conversation on how to move forward. And that, so, so let's see how that evolves. I don't know that we're ready to jump into this today, but I think as the calls come forward, the president's view is, if you all want to get together and start coming to a way that we can come to resolution, um, we're willing to listen. But right now, uh, we've got an agenda to continue to pursue. I'm not going to yeah. jump ahead, but I will say that we believe that there is something that could still be done at some point. And I think the further along we go, where premiums continue to go up, more and more people will be drawn into this discussion because the, there's going to be a continued cry from people in terms of the impact that it's having on their pocketbook and on their ability to see people that uh, a doctor of their choice or a plan that's just not seeding them anymore. April. Uh, real, quick, uh, real quick follow-up on Chairman yeah. Nunes. Do you, do you reject that there's any kind of perception problem whatsoever in having the chairman over here the day before he comes out publicly and says, by the way, there's this information that's helpful to the well, president. I, I think the, the chairman's made very clear through his public comments what his goal was, and I think anyone who wants to, I mean, you can't ask someone to do a review of the situation and then and then sort of uh, create inferences that because they're reviewing a situation that there's something, uh, you know, that, that's not right about that. He is, he is reviewing the situation. He did exactly what it, and I think he's been fairly open with the press as far as what he was doing, who he spoke to, and why. And I think, uh, you know, from, from our standpoint, that's what, he, what we had asked to do as a review, April. Sean, uh, several topics. Uh, one, I <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> Don't be. Um, you heard the question that I lobbed at the Attorney General about the hate crime uh, that happened in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, the white supremacist who went to New York and targeted a black man. Uh, hate crimes are on the rise. What do, what do you say? What is this White House saying about this obvious apparent hate crime? I'm not going to, I mean, you're at, you, you yelled at the, the Attorney General a specific case, if I'm not correct. In the past to talk about this, and you've talked about issues of hate right, crimes. I'm glad to talk about the issue. I just want to be very clear uh -huh. that I'm not going to reference any specific case before the DOJ right now. Um, I will say that the President um, has recognized that we need to bring the country together. Um, he wants to unite this country. He wants to bring people together. He had a very long conversation with respect to race in itself, uh, which I think is somewhat if I'm not correct in your question. there. Okay, I just want to be clear. Thank you. And I think that was one of the topics that he talked about with the CBC. Um, some of the issues with respect to crime and education and uh, some of the solutions that they suggested that could be done during their meeting. And I think those are the kind of things that I think we can, can start, we can continue that conversation. Um, unfortunately, there's been a rise in hate crimes when it comes to different groups to include anti-Semitic crimes. 
Yeah, and we. Um, it, but you've commented from that podium. This is clear. This gentleman in his jailhouse gave a statement to a reporter talking about he wishes the man were younger and were he was a thug um, that he killed. So, what do you say to this? This is clear. It's racism at its ugliest. Yeah. Two issues. Number one, I think hate crimes, anti-Semitic crimes of any nature should be called out in the most reprehensible way. Um, there is no room for that in our country, and I think the President noted that in the joint address, that there is one issue that, despite policy, should unite us, and that is calling out hate, that is calling out divisiveness based on the color of one's skin, one's religion, one's gender. The President's been very clear on that, and he's called it out before. He's, with respect to certain particular situations, he made it very clear at the opening of his joint address, that's what he led with, is a call to, to denounce hate no matter where we come from politically. He's also talked about it the night that he uh, took the stage on that Wednesday morning around 2.40 a.m. about how one of the things that he needed to do and wanted to do as president was unite all Americans. But I think that there's one other piece to this, April, that I just want to be clear on. While we unequivocally, no question about it, need to call out hate, anti-Semitism where it exists, there is another thing that we have to do, and in your case in particular, while I don't know all of the details and I don't want to reference any specific case. But I think we saw this the other day with some of the anti-Semitic behavior that was going out um, with respect to people of the Jewish faith, is that we saw these threats coming into Jewish community centers and there was an immediate jump to criticize folks on the right and to denounce us, denounce people on the right and ask them to condemn them. And it turns out that in fact it wasn't someone on the right and it was the, and the president from the get-go had said, I bet you it's not someone, and he was right. And yet, oh no, I understand that. But and that's, I'm saying he's a white supremacist. I understand I that, and I think yeah. in those cases, there's no question, black and white, we need to call out all instances of this. But that being said, while we're on the topic, I do think that there has been a, a rush to judgment in a lot of other cases when it comes to, in particular, some of the anti-Semitic discussion, <laughs> where people have jumped to the conclusion about denouncing people on the right and asking for this. And in that particular case, we saw that the president was right and that this rush to judgment by a lot of folks on the left was wrong and none of them have been held to account on that. And that is something that equally needs to be called out. When people are charging something of someone that is not true, there has been nothing to go back to those individuals. Nothing on the left who came and asked for everyone on the right to denounce something that they weren't guilty of. And I think that there needs to be an equal go back in time and call out those individuals for, for rushing to judgment and to calling out those individuals. For my second topic, and I'm done. Um, uh, someone who was in the room, you like talking about this CBC meeting that happened last week. Uh, someone who was actually in the room uh, at that meeting uh, said that uh, the issue of HBCUs came up, and that's a very sensitive subject right now uh, in the black community and here at the White House. Uh, the issue of HBCUs came up, and it's uh, Omarosa said that she would be the one heading uh, the HBCU office at the White House, and the president did not uh, make a response, <coughs> confirming or denying. Will this be the case? Is this the case? I, I, we don't have any uh, announcements to make. I, I assume that you're referring to the executive order. Um, and we don't have anything to announce on that subject at this time. Kristen. Sean, thank you. Given that the Freedom Caucus blocked the proposal of Obama, does the President still believe he can work with the Freedom Caucus on future pieces of legislation? I think it's going to depend on what legislation. Well, I, again, I'm not going to, it's not a question of we're going to work with anybody who, um, 
who wants to work with us on, ach on achieving the goals that the president set out. I don't think we're not putting anyone in saying we'll never work with you again. Um, it is that balance. No, I don't think he's written. No, I, I think as, as he mentioned, he learned a lot through this process about loyalty. Um, and it's not just a block, it's certain individuals. Uh, and again, I'm not going to get into naming names, but I think the president learned a lot through this process. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that's interesting is when you look back, and, the, and I know there's been a lot to make of this, the president also recognizes that when there's not a deal to be made, when to walk away. That's one of the, one of the traits. Um, it's not just about making deals, it's knowing when to walk away from deals and knowing when there's a bad deal that's the only solution. I think the president understood um, that where we were, that while you can get a deal at the time, that sometimes a bad deal is worse than getting a deal. And I think he smartly recognized that what was on the table was not going to be keeping with uh, the vision that he had. Um, and so he, he, he decided that this was not the time uh, and that a deal was not at hand. Let me ask you about this tweet over the weekend. Does he regret tweeting to his followers that they should tune in to Judge Janine only to tune in and then have her call for House Speaker Ryan to step down? That's it, plain and simple. But does I mean, he owe Speaker Ryan an apology then? I, he and Speaker Ryan talked extensively over the weekend. I mean, he's a. I, I don't know if they talked today. I think they talked both Saturday and Sunday at length. But, but again, he's a fan uh, of the show. He tweeted out support of it. That's it. A plain lot of people. I know what a lot of people say, Kristen. I just said it. So does he owe the no, House Speaker an apology? He doesn't. He's spoken for what? For supporting a show on Fox? No. And does Dave. Does he still have confidence they can work together with Dave. Two questions. One, on the president choosing uh, Jared Kushner for this new Office of American Innovation to mm -hmm. reform government <laughs> across the government. Um, obviously, Jared Kushner has 60-some days of experience in Washington, never had a prior government job. Does the president view that somehow as an advantage in this case? In some cases. Um, when you look at the individuals that he's bringing in, again, I think one of the things that Jared, um, you know, and, and again, they may talk more about this later, but one of the things that Jared's looking at is some of the, the procurement, the technology aspects. Um, and if you've ever really dealt with the government and recognized how outdated and unmodernized some of this is, it is not serving the American people. It is not serving the constituents that many departments have. And I think looking at how we procure uh, different things and procure uh, technology in particular is important. It's an important way. I mean, I think when you look at the VA in particular and recognize how it handles certain things, there are certain things it does really well. By the way, it buys prescription drugs really well. Buys in bulk, gets the job done. But there's, there's certain things that it may not do as well in terms of uh, how it keeps its records and how it serves veterans, how it lends money, et cetera, um, that, that we can look at and figure out, is there a better way? Government is not business, right? We recognize that there are certain things that business would never do um, in terms of what government has to do because we serve all of our people. But there are certain practices that we can put in place that can help us deliver a better product, a better service to the American people. Um, in some of these key areas. Um, and I think that when you look at some of the business acumen um, that Jared and some of the other individuals who he is bringing into this process can really, I, I think it is a great service to this country. There are so many individuals that Jared has talked to that have done so well and been so blessed by our nation that have wanted to give back in some way, shape, or form and are using this opportunity to help our country and serve our country in ways that um, that they that they believe they can use their expertise to do. And on healthcare, on yeah. healthcare, um, this review that you've talked about, what went right, what went wrong. Uh, I know you don't want to name names, but would it be fair to say at this point that the president has written off some people? I just I think I answered that question. It's not a question of written them off. 
it's a question of understanding, you know, th there's sort of a, uh, an understanding of, you know, how you deal with certain people and, and how they dealt with you, but it's not a question of writing them off. We're going to need to get to, you know, as time goes on, we'll get to, I'm going to just keep saying 218, it's easier. I won't screw that one up um, down the line. But, but I think that we recognize that as we go down this path of a big, bold agenda that the President has, that we're going to need every vote we can um, and hopefully grow the vote in some cases uh, to well beyond that. But we're not writing off anybody. But we do recognize um, there's some lessons learned from, from this process. And the President made it very clear on Friday. Thank you guys very much. I'll see you tomorrow. Before Enjoy the day. Time. You think we'll see you before midterm?